Hey, it's Steven. It's the week after Jigger's final episode. Thanks to everyone for their kind emails and social media reactions. We were super lucky to have Jigger as our co-host for so many years, and now we're all lucky he's leading the American government's efforts to finance clean energy. And as they say, the show goes on. We're currently booking a diverse range of high-profile guests to join us each week. I really think you're going to like what we have in store for you. Lots of amazing people in the hopper. In the meantime, I want to offer up a new episode of our sister show, The Interchange. I know some of you listen to it, but there are still a lot of you who don't. So this is the perfect time to follow the show on whatever podcast app you are listening on right now. The Interchange is hosted by Shail Khan, a partner at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. And every week, he has deep conversations about the technical and financial forces that are pushing decarbonization. Some recent interviews include MIT's Sarah Sklarsik on biotech approaches to carbon removal, Kate Height of RMI on decarbonizing the gas system, and Agora's Ganivamir Fleece on whether the boom in hydrogen is real. In this episode, Shale talks with fellow venture capitalist Abe Yakel. Every so often, we take stock of how the climate tech sector is faring, and it's safe to say this year has brought some of the biggest changes to the space we've ever seen. Shale and Abe try to separate what's real from what's hype. Subscribe to The Interchange right now, and stay with us here for more episodes next week with new guest co-hosts, many of whom were suggested by you. Before we get to today's crossover episode, I want to talk about our sponsors really quickly. We're brought to you by C-Power. C-Power has a new book out that you should read. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID. It takes a peek at eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America and reveals key energy management strategies that successful organizations executed during the wildest year of this young century. Authored by 19 Sea Power experts with a combined total of more than 300 years of energy experience, the book is a must have resource for any commercial and industrial organization striving to optimize energy use and spend in 2021. Visit thecpowerway.com slash 2021 to download the new book. And we're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world for solar and storage. It's got 10 gigawatts of inverters in the Americas alone and 120 gigawatts in total across the globe. SunGrow is also meeting the growing calls for deep decarbonization by getting lots of renewable energy projects out in the field and cleaning up its own operations. Learn more about SunGrow's products, its decarbonization efforts, and its cutting-edge R&D at sungrowpower.com. Us OGs, we're going to miss something. And I don't quite know what it is, otherwise I'd invest in it, but we're going to miss it. Uh, And I think there's going to be a couple examples where some of the new entrants just clean up where we're kind of putting our heads in the sand collectively. And of course, it's our job to make sure that we try not to do that, but we may fail. The early stage climate tech landscape has changed. What does it mean for investment and innovation in the sector? I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. For anyone who doesn't know, I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners, which invests in companies that are trying to solve the challenges of mitigating climate change. Just over two years ago, in February 2019, we did an episode of this show with another investor, a friend of mine and my erstwhile office mate, Abe Yokel of Congruent Ventures. That episode two years ago was called, and I quote, Clean Tech VC is back. Because it seemed like at the time, there had finally been a resurgence of investment and early stage innovation in the world of 
climate, which had previously been called clean tech, after basically a decade in the wilderness. It has been a crazy two years since then. For the first 12 months or so following that conversation, momentum continued to build. Climate tech became the term of choice for this growing movement, and more money in startups than ever arrived on the scene. Then COVID hit. And for a few months, I think it seemed a little bit like the music might have stopped. Less investment flowed in. People got worried that the you know hype around the sector was going to disappear. And there was a collective pause, as there were in many areas. Nope. Instead, the past nine months or so have supercharged climate tech to a degree that I at least have never seen before in any sector. I wasn't quite old enough to really experience the dot-com fervor and then the subsequent blow-up, but I'm told that the excitement level during the heady days of the dot-com boom uh, is basically the closest corollary to what we can see right now in the world of climate tech. So what happened? Oh, a bunch of things that make it basically impossible to separate and isolate exactly what's going on. But partial list of things that have changed. We've had an election. We've had stimulus, both in the U.S. and abroad. We've had low interest rates that have continued for a very long time. We've had growing recognition of the climate crisis amongst everyone from individuals to corporate actors to governments, SPACs have played a big role, as we've discussed before on this show, corporate commitments to net zero, investor commitments to net zero, asset manager commitments to net zero, advocacy, all of these things have come together to make climate tech one of, if not the hottest sector right now from a technology innovation and investment perspective. So we were due for another check-in on the state of this market to figure out what is going on and where there may still be new opportunity, despite the hype. My conversation with Abe. Hey, Abe. Hey, Shell. How you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Glad to hear it. So when you and your partner, Josh, founded Congruent Ventures, how long ago was that now? It was about four years ago, a little bit over. Four years ago. Okay, so 2017, early 2017. So at that point, as I recall, uh, and when you and I were chatting about it, when you guys were raising the first fund, the, the thesis at the time was basically there is a dearth of really early stage capital for sustainability or climate oriented startups, like first, first capital onto a company's cap table. Um, am I right that that was the original thesis? Yep, that's it. That's all we had to say. And then a bunch of people gave us money and we invested it. Right. And you've done a great job. Um, but it strikes me that times have changed somewhat. So what is, what is the current state of affairs today as you see it with regard to that exact question? Like if you're an entrepreneur who is trying to start a company from scratch in the what we're now calling climate tech world, um, what does the capital landscape look like to you? A lot different than it was four years ago, but it has not yet caught up, I think, to the hype at the earliest stages. So just a little context that you just alluded to. When we started Congruent uh, and, and we had our first official fund close in early 2017, as you imagined, and as you stated, there was almost no institutional capital at the venture level investing in startups, but more importantly, there was almost no limited partner interest in investing in early stage climate 
and clean tech investors like Josh and me. And so our exercise was going out to a bunch of institutional investors and trying to convince them to allocate us dollars into this blind pool of venture fund fun to invest in a bunch of companies that had lost them money for 15 years running. So why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, there has been a lot more activity in the early stage venture firm formation, uh, but there is still not that many venture firms. There are not that many venture firms that are focused on early stage climate uh, as a single focus. There are many who are now dipping their toes into investing early stage when it looks like a company that they might otherwise invest in out of their, say, tech practice. So what does that then amount to from an entrepreneur's perspective, especially relative to four years ago, two years ago, a year ago? Is it now, if you're building an early stage company and you have a credible backstory and an exciting technology or whatever it might be, you have all the, you all, you know, all the ingredients for what would be a venture backable enterprise. There are investors beating down your door with safe notes, or you're still, you know, out there hunting for the first check and struggling or somewhere in between. The landscape has changed a lot. It is hard to figure it out. I think in many ways, if you are a software entrepreneur doing, say, an enterprise carbon accounting startup. As, as just a random example. As a totally random example. <laughs> we don't know any of those companies. You haven't been no, talking of course about not. them. We haven't seen any recently, uh, except right. many. Uh, then you can go to a traditional venture fund that is now interested in climate, and you can get a lot of interest. If you're doing uh, grid tech in early stage... And you have to deal with the esoterics of ERCOT versus California ISO versus regulated entities or co-ops, then it is there's still no market, I would say, for early stage startups. So it really depends on the flavor of climate uh, company that is being formed. Yeah, I, I think it, there's a couple of threads to pull on there. One is kind of what you alluded to if you're if you're in the like more esoteric harder to understand parts of climate tech it's harder for you versus the easy to understand we're an enterprise SaaS platform that does we're an ERP for for carbon accounting again to use a random example um then it's easier to go to the the mainstream venture funds and then sort of related to that it does still feel like there is a divide between software and hard tech there's a lot of companies that are that bridge the divide and do some of both, but and there are, you know, there's more capital available certainly now for the hard tech stuff, even at the early stages than there was four years ago. But there is still, it feels to me, like a a divide between how easy it will be for you to raise capital if you're a pure software company versus if you're building something that's going to take you four or five years to commercialize or more. I think there is a divide, but even those that are producing pure software, if they're serving a market that is historically unloved, it still can be challenging. You know, the, the example, not to spend too much time on it, but on the enterprise carbon accounting or uh, reporting business is that it looks like a software enterprise selling to enterprise companies, <laughs> which has a certain implication, has a company structure, has uh, salespeople you can identify and there's a rinse and repeat story there. When you're talking about selling something to utilities, which has historically been a great way to lose money as an early stage investor, uh, it's it's quite different. Um, having said that, we've already made a number of investments in companies that are utility facing. And we fundamentally believe that there are some 
moving parts and pieces to some of those businesses that will actually push even software businesses forward in some historically difficult to invest and operate in industries. For what it's worth, selling to utilities is also historically a great place to lose money as a late stage investor, not just an early stage investor. And yet we also tell LPs. <laughs> we also have made many, many a bet uh, around that. What does that mean for you in terms of your strategy? Is it Look, you know, deals become extremely competitive if they look akin to the types of things that traditional VCs are used to seeing at this point, and thus those are harder to invest in for you. Um, or is it no? We we still need to be a part of that part of the trend, and we just need to find the companies earlier. It's a bit of both, and the, the, this is my unfair shortcut, probably of the day. But if you think about our job at Congruent as a firm and fund manager, it's our job to find those companies in general as an early stage investor that will then get dogpiled later. So we want to be the first check, help these companies think through product market fit, scale, organizational design, build, and then call up our office mates or former office mates who may or may not be hosting this podcast and then get them to pay premium dollar to come in and invest in, in these companies. But in seriousness, our, our job is to make sure that our companies are properly capitalized. So ultimately, if there is a you know late stage frenzy of capital activity around some of the companies that we've already invested in, that's only going to benefit the companies and us because we tend to be aligned with the founders at the at the get go. I would be lying if I told you that it wasn't going to affect how um, the perception and the reality of the pricing exercise that we go through uh, is pursued. So as deals increase in value and the velocity of dollars increase, uh, whether it's through SPACs or late stage dollars coming to earlier stage uh, funding rounds, then it will and has impacted the valuations that we're seeing at the pre-seed seed and series A. From our perspective, as long as the end point is clear, meaning the overall exit makes sense, the difference between you know, a marginal amount, a 10% difference in valuation at the stages where we invest doesn't matter. What matters is overall company success. If things start doubling in value, that gets a little more challenging. And I think one of the challenges that our whole ecosystem is going to face over the course of the next one to two years, particularly in the early stage, is whether we are going to be willing to break our historical pricing discipline and participate in some of these higher priced rounds. Yeah, I think this is this is going to be and is already in many places a, a really core question. And just to draw it out a little further. So I think we can both agree that valuations across the board in companies that are quote unquote climate tech companies are up um, and some of them are up 10%, some of them relative to what they would have otherwise been a year or two years ago, right? Some of them are up 10%, some of them are double, some of them are more. And I think that is true probably across stages. Uh, it's certainly true in the later stages because now we get into like SPAC land, which we could talk about in a minute. But the quest, the fundamental question then for an individual investor is, is this due to a change in the market? Like, is it is it now true that there are better exit opportunities for these companies or it is more likely that they will have a successful exit, more likely they'll be able to raise additional capital, you know, at at higher valuations later? Like, has the has the world actually changed in a way such that it justifies the change in valuations or are we all hyping ourselves up in a in a little circle and we're all going to come to regret it 
you know, when the, when the music stops at some point. And, and I, and there's no, there's no way to know the absolute answer to that question. But, um, I think that there's some people have a default reaction, which is to say valuations are crazy. And at least to me, it does feel like the world has changed somewhat. SPACs have changed the world a bit. You know, policy landscape has changed the world a bit. Like broad commitments to decarbonization have changed. Lots of things have happened that like seem to me to be fundamental that should cause you to rethink what is a company worth at this stage. I think that's fair. I think it is also true that the answer can be both, which is uh, another unfair comment. But the if we take a big step back, so I'm now over 17 years deep living in this ecosystem as a, as a venture investor. The sad truth of the matter is that over time, on average, the average fund vehicle in our sectors, broadly defined, has lost money for LPs or certainly has not kept up with market standards. Um, in the last year, it's the first and really the last six months, it's the first time that investors are actually seeing kind of top quartile, meaning top performance percentages from some of these vintage old funds. There are these assets that have gone out, they're spacking, and they are seeing liquidity. So uh, regardless of the duration of, uh, of the SPAC activity, there are some real returns that are showing up. Those don't go away. And so uh, investors are starting to see, as in our investors and other f firm and fund investors, are seeing real returns. The question over time will become how durable it is. And so is this is the SPAC activity, it is hard to ignore uh, the SPAC activity. If you're in venture, it's not just climate and sustainability. If you're in venture, SPACs are everywhere. There are most of the major <laughs> firms are now raising their own SPACs. Um, it is quite remarkable to see the activity and it is honestly quite difficult to digest the implications. Uh, the question really becomes six months, three years or permanent. I'm not in the permanent camp, to be honest. Um, I'd like to be, but I'm not. I don't know whether it's going to be well, six months or three years. Let's be more specific though, right? At least my view is SPACs as a category may be permanent, right? As, as a way to bring a company public may be permanent. But then even within that, the question of six months, three years or permanent probably has more to do with the current environment and the companies that are able to SPAC, the valuations they achieve, when they de-SPAC, and then the market reaction to them, right? Because what we have right now is, first of all, we have this big supply-demand imbalance. There's tons and tons and tons of SPACs out there looking for a target, and many of them specifically looking for a target in ESG or sustainability or climate or energy or whatever. Um, and, you know, not that many what would otherwise be public market-ready companies. And so that's how you end up. And, and you know, the sort of SPAC, the... the um, the reason SPACs are different is they allow you to make forward projections, which you can't do in a traditional IPO. And so, you know, all these things sort of lend themselves well towards companies that are highly capital intensive, huge total addressable market, big story, potential for market leadership, a lot of growth ahead of them, but don't necessarily have a product or revenue or a whole lot to show for it. And it's not every SPAC that's been that way, but that's, I think, it seems like more than anything else, that's the thing that's causing everybody heartburn or at least you know, keeping people up at night trying to think about SPACs. And so the question is, will that last six months, three years, or forever? Or do you think that it's possible that like SPACs themselves disappear I don't sometime think, in the near future? I don't think SPACs disappear. There is some 
risk that the SEC comes down on them and makes them look more like a um, a SOX compliant, you know, IPO process. And so it kind of deflates some of the five year forward looking uh, projections. The, the reality is, is that these SPACs really look like IPOs kind of used to look before Sarbanes-Oxley Oxley and SOX compliance. Uh, and so we're kind of back to those days and there's a pent up demand, you know, for both public investors investing in this kind of risk in an interest rate environment that yields no interest. Um, so uh, there's there's a real risk premium. I think if I can be so presumptuous to give you a little SPAC therapy, we have to talk about SPACs because at the end of the day, our business as venture firms and funds is to invest in companies, help them grow and to see exits for those companies, to see them scale to uh, to meaningful penetration in dollars. Capital is a necessary but insufficient mechanism to get them there. Um, but our fiduciary duty, we, we have split duties. One is to our investors uh, at Congruent or at uh, EIP. Uh, the other is oftentimes to these companies in which we invest. These are not exit events per se, but it is the preamble to an exit event. If we ignored the fact that these companies and these SPACs were giving us great liquidity and exit events, then we wouldn't be doing our job. So we talk about SPACs a lot. We're all kind of sick of it. But the reality is, is that it is so far, it is the only real exit mechanism that is accruing value to the investors in these, uh, in, particularly in the climate and sustainability ecosystem. And it's the first time we've seen real high-priced exits ever in the sector. And so there's a question that comes about, which is, are the SPACs and public markets seeing something that historically other acquirers and the more risk-averse traditional IPO path is not seeing? Or is it just a, a great tulip bubble? Plenty more of this conversation to come, including the Mr. Burns test. What the heck is the Mr. Burns test? You'll find out. First, a word about our sponsors. How did your organization's demand-side energy management fare in the chaos of 2020? Well, CPower's latest book, Demand-Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID, takes a peek into eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America and reveals key energy management strategies that organizations executed during 2020. And so if you're looking for lessons to learn, this is the book for you. It breaks down the demand response and demand management programs available in five of the nation's open energy markets, as well as those offered in several of the largest electric utilities and U.S. deregulated markets. It's authored by 19 sea power experts with a combined total of more than 300 years of energy experience. Visit thecpowerway.com slash 2021 to download this new sea power book. We are also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading supplier for inverter solutions for renewables and storage, and it is uh, supporting decarbonization out there in the field, but it's also supporting its own decarbonization efforts. It is trying its best to clean up as fast as possible. SunGrow joined the RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. Beyond ensuring its factories are powered by solar, SunGrow has also invested in electric buses to move staff around facilities in China, and that has earned China's national standard for green factories. Even with the pandemic raging, SunGrow has been able to bring innovative solutions to market, including a new 3.6 megawatt outdoor central inverter, a flexible option for standalone solar projects and solar plus storage. To learn more about SunGrow's decarbonization and its innovation efforts, go to sungrowpower.com. 
Um, I don't want to talk too much about SPACs, uh, despite them being as important as you described for exactly the reasons you described. But I want to maybe um, talk a little bit less about like the insider baseball of of climate tech VC and more about how we're thinking about this space and the companies within this space. And particularly one of the things that I think is emerging as an interesting open question um, is uh, is to revisit the Mr. Burns test. Mr. Burns test is a... Uh, it's, a, it's an explanation. Seth Bannon at 50 Years, which is another early stage venture fund, uses this to describe, I think, something that has been considered often by by investors in the, the climate space, which is basically, um, if you are a believer in the Mr. Burns test, you will not invest in a company if that company's sole or primary value proposition is climate change mitigation or carbon reduction or something like that. Like the value of a product or a service has to be something else because the thesis goes that people will not buy people, companies, whoever will not buy things at scale if all they do is reduce emissions or uh, remove emissions. Um, But, you know, there is a lot of activity right now, particularly the early stages around a host of sectors that generally don't pass the Mr. Burns test. So the sort of obvious example of that would be carbon removal, carbon capture, forestry-based solutions, carbon offsets and carbon markets, like all that kind of stuff, right? Um, Do you think that the Mr. Burns test, given the current environment now, given all the commitments made by corporates and and governments and so on uh, around emissions reduction, is the Mr. Burns test outdated now? It is a great question. It's not something that we have a perfectly clear answer to. I will say that we have historically and continue to only invest in companies that do stand on their own two feet without any additional price on carbon, for example. The question where the gray area is, is when you actually unpack what that means, if the perception in the markets are such that there will be value in a price on carbon or carbon offsets, for example, and whether that's because there's consumer opt-in or because it's uh, uh, corporate policy such that it's putting a price on carbon regardless, then you don't necessarily need a policy driver. There's a societal driver that has actually priced the carbon for you. And so uh, the real question that this gets to is, will we invest in a company before there is a policy framework in the US, for example, for a price on carbon? Um, and my answer is still no, (laughs) but, uh, if there are transacting dollars in carbon offsets, uh, that are kind of outside of any regulation, then the answer may be yes. Uh, so for example, there's a a host of companies that are working on, you know, carbon offsets for, for personal purposes. We've looked at some of those and have been quite interested and will invest because we see that there's transactional volume even outside of policy. And so to me, that actually fits within the Mr. Burns test, which is there are people who are voting with their checkbooks. There are corporations voting for the, with their checkbooks um, that are transacting dollars that can support a market. Now, how deep that market is, is a totally separate question. The other way to look at this, of course, is around um, an option. Uh, This is kind of the financial lingo of, am I buying a relatively inexpensive option on as an investor in an early stage company that might just clean up in the case of a price on carbon? So am I buying a, you know, an option to do so? 
And there is certainly a good rationale to make those kinds of investments. We haven't quite wrapped our heads around doing that yet uh, in terms of pure option value at Congruent. Well, so a couple things there. The, the first one is, wait, I want to make sure I understand, though, you know, it, there are dollars transacting. You, like you said, there are dollars transacting in this sort of personal carbon offset world. There are dollars transacting in the corporate carbon markets and all that as well. So what doesn't fit that test then? Wouldn't anything fit it? Maybe. I mean, that's okay. may, maybe I'm misinterpreting the Mr. Burns test. But my view is that if a company has a market to serve, regardless of the reasons for why that market exists, then it passes the Mr. Burns test. The real question is, is will a price on carbon be necessary to support a company? And my answer is, if, if we need policy or regulation, we probably won't pull the trigger. We have just made an investment in an unnamed company that will uh, actually stands on its own two feet and also offsets a tremendous amount of carbon. So we're not accounting for any upside from carbon offsetting, but the fundamental economics of their activities are very positive. And that we love because not only does it pass the kind of merciless Mr. Burns test of no price on carbon, if there is a price on carbon, everybody wins. Right. I mean, there's clearly a, there's a category of companies and technologies for that have some value proposition that's completely independent of carbon and carbon is icing on the cake or more margin or something like that. And that, that obviously changes the equation around the, the Mr. Burns test. It, yeah, I think the interesting question uh, for ones that don't fit that bill. So, you know, let's just take direct air capture as like the purest example of this. So your direct air capture company, what you do is literally take CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, there is a market for that CO2 today, right? You And, and there, there are multiple ways that you can monetize it today. You can sell carbon removal credits to a Microsoft or a Shopify or a Stripe. You can sell the CO2, like there's a market for CO2, you know, beverage carbonation, enhanced oil recovery, whatever it might be. Um, all of those markets are relatively shallow today. And so to your point, that might be an example where, yeah, you can you can start to scale off of that market today, but you need something to happen to become a really big business. And that something is either the market for voluntary carbon dioxide removal really explodes and it stops being those three companies I mentioned and becomes every company that signs a renewable PPA now also, you know, signs an offtake for carbon dioxide removal, or it's legislated into action um, via some kind of a, a carbon price. And so that's maybe an example that's sort of in between where like it, you know, maybe narrowly passes the Mr. Burns test today, but maybe not, but it's definitely a good option. I think that's right. All right. Um, let's move on and let's play a little game Oops. overhyped and underhyped. Um, each of us are going to pick a, a sector within climate tech that is overhyped, too much excitement and attention around it right now. And then we will pick one that is underhyped and we think people should be spending more time on. Um, I'm going to have you go first. No, Name you your... go first. <laughs> you you no, want me, no, to go first? me to go first? Whatever you'd like, Uh Okay, you go first. All right. Overhyped. ShaleCon. <laughs> I'm a whole sector. Look, I'll take it. I'm just short shale. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if I'm a sector, you can you can short me. No, no, no. I'm long shale. I, I revise everything I say. Um, not long shale gas, uh, unfortunately, but um, overhyped. I would say 
non-fleet EV infrastructure, I think, is just overhyped. And to all my friends in that sector, I apologize in advance, but it is ridiculous. When you say non-fleet EV infrastructure, you mean charging infrastructure for the most part. Correct. Right. And you're saying charging infrastructure for the masses, residential charging, public charging, DC fast charging, everything that isn't for a fleet. I love it all. And it's overhyped. Why is it overhyped? If you look at the fundamental economics of those models, what you see is you have to drive high utilization. When you've got a closed end ecosystem like a a Tesla, uh, where you approximately know where all of your cars are and the utilization across those specific assets, you can actually uh, build your supply and demand of chargers and um, charging needs at the same time. When you have these public infrastructure uh, or publicly accessible infrastructure needs, you're basically betting on the fact that you can drive high utilization of a completely indeterminate demand onto your system. And the two modes there are either totally overutilized and therefore useless to the consumers who are trying to show up or underused. It's very difficult to hit the sweet spot in perfect utilization. And so they tend to be very hard businesses to run. Now, one solution to that is that you overcapitalize those businesses, build out a massive network and infrastructure layer, and build in overall asset utilization over time, which is, in fact, what's happened, I think, with SPACs, which is a net good for the world, so I'm not complaining about that. But as an early-stage investor, I don't believe it is very easy to build those businesses, and therefore I think they are a bit overhyped in the investment activity that those infrastructure and charging players are seeing. You're referring mostly to public charging, or at least non-residential charging, right? Like, the utilization rate doesn't really matter for a residential EV charger. Correct. But yeah, for, for public EV charging, it's interesting, you know, it's one of these areas where there, there's clearly a distinction between the unit economics, which are challenging, as you alluded to, but then at the same time, the like need, right? Because there's, because we're still, we, we don't, especially in the United States, we, we still don't have enough public chargers relative to the number of electric vehicles we have today, let alone the number that are coming. So we need more of them. Um, but when you look at the individual unit level, I mean, there are clever solutions to that, right? You can you can actually have pretty good unit economics if you're selling advertising, for example, at certain locations, right? And some companies do that. But um okay. That is that's over overhyped for you. It's funny, my overhyped is not it's not in an entirely different category. Um I was gonna say the sector that is overhyped is electric vehicle OEMs, um, companies that actually make new electric vehicles. And you know, the reason for that. So we have a bunch. They're also similarly a group of uh, recent SPACs. And let's just set aside all the heavy duty trucks and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, light and medium duty. Um, it's not clear to me that we need that many new vehicle OEMs in the world. What has changed, you know, over the past couple of years is that the incumbent vehicle OEMs have all pivoted extremely fast toward electric vehicles. We just saw, I think today on the date of this recording, Volvo announced they're going to be producing only electric vehicles by 2030, right? And they're just among all of the major auto OEMs at this point, basically. So if they're all going to be selling us a ton of electric vehicles, do we really need, you know, the canoe vehicle or not to pick on one of them, but all of these new vehicle OEMs? It doesn't seem like we're going to be buying more cars, at that point. So I struggle to figure out how, you know, if you add up the total market cap of all of the new EV OEMs plus all the traditional OEMs, I struggle to see how that's a sustainable uh, It is hard to disagree with you on that, but I will say that the that kind of mid-size delivery vehicle 
while there will be a lot of good vehicles in the market, I think in the next year to two years has has been totally unloved. And there's been a massive opportunity. Speaking of utilization, electric vehicles, as you've discussed in the past, tend to do best from a total cost of ownership when they're used heavily, which is actually not the personal vehicle. It's the fleet vehicle. Those are perfect duty cycles for delivery. And there is not a good product out there right now. There finally is about to be with Rivian. Workhorse has been working on it for a long time. I probably shouldn't name other names. But uh, the fact of the matter is that Ford, which is now focusing on it, has a huge business in this area. They will roll out on their F-150 platform delivery vehicles. But there has been an opportunity for a new entrant to come in and clean up in that area. And it has not happened yet. Yeah. Well, I'm long Rivian, for sure. If if for no other reason than I want the truck, personally. Um it's got this, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's got this like pull out uh, camper stove thing that is just like the coolest car gimmick I've ever seen. And so they, they had me at that alone. There's but, always a gimmick. Do you drive an electric vehicle now, Shell? Should I not ask? Uh, let's not talk about that. Okay, let's move right along. Um, all right, let's go on to underhyped, uh, a sector that you think deserves more attention than it is currently getting. Early stage investment in grid tech. Oh, all right. Go on. The underhyped area around grid tech is the result of how we started this conversation. Even when you have an interesting software innovation, if you are selling to utilities, most venture firms will just say no up front. And so when you think about hype, while they're from a societal perspective, if you look at the disaster of ERCOT, if you look at what happened uh, with over the summer with the California ISO, you would think that there is a massive amount of dollars being deployed against this. It is true that there are some companies that have raised significant capital in, in later stage rounds, but the early stage innovation here um, is still an unloved area. Uh, we're starting to see some real uh, aggregation of capital around a couple names, but it's challenging. So uh, the venture community has not yet turned its attention towards kind of some of this combination of hard tech, right, the grid, and even the software models that interact with it. What is your take on why everybody's wrong? I mean, look, Energy Impact Partners, we are backed by a group of incumbents who are predominantly utilities. We, we've we made a bunch of investments in this space and we'll continue to. So obviously we're sort of unique, but um, generally speaking, I think you're right. Investors are still scared of things that sell to utilities. What is your opinion about why they're wrong about that? So to be clear, historically, they're right. And I think it is changing now because the utilities are seeing these existential threats, uh, not to their model, but to their operations that are just creeping in. And the, 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 you know them, you probably know many more than I do. The utility execs are quite bright, very oriented towards long-term challenges. They tend to be long-term investors. What has snuck up on everybody, and I think you've even posted about this, is how quickly the pace of deployment in particularly solar um, and now uh, batteries is changing. Um, all of a sudden, groups are finding a massive amount of solar on their, eco- on their grid. Uh, and it's not disrupting their model yet, but what's going to become very clear is that they need to figure out how to marshal those resources to actually interact with these extreme weather events. This is a resiliency discussion. And within that, it is all about a tech-enabled platform of some kind. You have to take a physical asset, you have to connect it together, and you have to control it. And there's a lot of companies, I'm, so, I'm sure some are in your portfolio, I know some of them are in mine, um, that are focused on, on those challenges. But you still have to sell to utilities oftentimes. 
and there's because of the history in the space, there's kind of a do not fly zone there. So I think the utility executives and those who are close to the challenge are quite focused on these areas and are very optimistic actually to see sales cycles compress within the utility world. Um, and that goes for co-ops, it goes for munis, it goes for CCAs, which make very quick decisions, relatively speaking, probably a little less so for the traditional investor-owned utilities. Um, but more some of the more nimble utility models, uh, we are seeing sales compression, sales cycle compression across the board uh, as they deal with renewable power purchase agreements versus, you know, for example, legacy coal power purchase agreements. Quite fascinating. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, to the extent I agree with you that there is, there's less going on at the early stages in this sector. And this will be true of mine, which is adjacent as well, perhaps not surprisingly, um, than, than there are in a lot of other sectors in this new wave of climate tech. But I think to the extent that there is, you know, it's coming with entrepreneurs who are a little bit more sophisticated about how to sell to utilities, which was one of the challenges, the first cycle, one of the reasons why the sales cycles have been so long. As an example, if you are selling to an investor-owned utility, you need to understand how they make money. You need to understand, you know, is what you're selling, can it be capitalized? Is it CapEx or OpEx? How do you structure deals accordingly? How do you structure what you sell? You, you just even understanding that stuff, um, you know, jumps ahead in what would otherwise be a long series of initial conversations in one of these these sales cycles. So I think, you know, more sophisticated, more experienced entrepreneurs who've been around the block or have um, have investors or partners or advisors who've been around the block in this sector makes it a little bit easier. M- my underhyped sector is... Um, also in the world of electricity, except for me, it is uh, innovation around old school renewables and lithium ion battery storage, which is, you know, I think what has happened is these markets, solar, wind, and storage have matured. They're pretty mature markets now. And partially as a result of that, um, much of the early stage innovation that you see is outside of that stuff. Most of it's outside of electricity at this point. Um, but even within electricity, right, it's like looking ahead to the next problem. And that's good and that's needed. But any reasonable expectation, like bare minimum over the next couple of decades means we will deploy literally trillions of dollars, probably tens of trillions of dollars into deploying ever cheaper solar and wind and lithium ion batteries all over the world at a host of different sites with a host of different use cases at a host of different scales. And I think you're crazy if you think there's no way to continue to innovate around that stuff, despite the fact that the markets are somewhat mature. It's not like there's been zero innovation in the like incumbent oil and gas world over the past 30 years, right? There are a million ways to build good businesses in what is an enormous market opportunity. And I'm surprised at how little we see there at this point. So are you suggesting that I should be focused on software companies around battery management? Uh, you could certainly do that. That would be an example well, let me of, try of an area. Shale, what would you pay the biggest premium for if I went to invest <laughs> if, yeah. in it first? In 12 months, in 12 what will months, get you the greatest step up? What would you like up? to do? Let me find that for you. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I think there's a million different. Make, make it cheaper, make it faster, make it easier. Um, you know, find the right sites, do better analysis of opportunities and interconnection, like speed up interconnection. Yeah. It's just like, there's a ton that you can do. To be um, clear for your, for your audience here, despite the fact that we've shared office space, well, pre pandemic for a long time, our firms have yet to co-invest together. So 
I, I still have not successfully, you know, pawned off one of our companies onto you. Yeah, I um I apparently have terrible taste, as does everyone at EIP. Um all right. Let's uh let's finish up with a sort of I guess we'll go back to navel gazing a little bit here, which is we've talked about this before. Um because there is such renewed excitement around this sector and climate tech. There is, along with that excitement, there's a raft of new entrants to the investing world um, who are excited and really engaged and are deploying capital. And um, then there's a, a group of folks who have, you know, seen the first wave uh, and stuck it out and are now, you know, we're sort of considered the like OG climate tech people, which is a weird, a weird feeling to have. Um, but I guess the question is, you know, as we welcome all these new entrants into the space, what do you think are the things that they w- were likely to get right that we and our cohort who've been around it for a long time may miss? I'm going to say two things right after I have to acknowledge that if you aren't looking at shale right now, like I am, he is old. He looks old. He's like, <laughs> he's an OG energy guy. Yeah. All right. <laughs> My battle scars are visible. Yeah. In answer to your question, what are the new investors going to get right that we're going to get wrong? I would say, speaking uh, out of turn, but for the early stage OG venture community focused on climate and sustainability, I think there are some things that we alluded to around the Mr. Burns test that uh, have become abundantly obvious to kind of early stage investors that we're not seeing. So some of the activity around you know, the, the price on carbon, probably the, the biggest portfolio around this, and I think they've done a wonderful job, is lower carbon capital. They're investing in a lot of stuff that in many ways, without a price on carbon, I think does not pass the Mr. Burns chest. I think they're probably going to be just dramatically right and going to just absolutely clean up. And... You know, there's a, there's a little analog, which is perhaps a little unfair, but uh, for those of you who don't follow the venture lingo out there or the venture news flow, uh, Coinbase um, he has, has uh, filed uh, for, uh, I think, a direct listing, actually. And the, reportedly, it's something, the rumors are it'll be worth something like $800 billion, speaking of Mr. Burns, billion, that's with a B. Um, our friends at Union Square Ventures, which we collectively know, and of course, uh, we've already co-invested with, and have, they've raised their own early stage climate fund. They invested in crypto back when everybody thought it was absolute lunacy. Um, and, and Fred uh, apparently led this early stage Series A round, which would now in today's lingo be called a Series Seed round. Uh, and I think Union Square on that single investment is going to clear, if it's worth $100 billion, something like $8 billion on a fund size that's probably a couple hundred million dollars. It is going to be one of the returns in venture history. And it's because they take the similar approach of investing in a theme uh, and a sector where others have not yet acknowledged that it is true. So that is going to happen. Us OGs, we're going to miss something. And I don't quite know what it is, otherwise I'd invest in it, but we're going to miss it. Uh, And I think there's going to be a couple examples where some of the new entrants just clean up where we're kind of putting our heads in the sand collectively. And of course, it's our job to make sure that we try not to do that, but we may fail. I think that that is a very good example. I agree with you that, you know, there's sort of a a broad-based bet that folks like fluorocarbon are making that that if it pans out is going to turn out to be an enormous win. 
it feels to me like the um the basis of that a lot of the time i think i've talked about this before but it strikes me that a lot of people investors entrepreneurs scientists technologists anybody who is n- taking a fresh look at climate change and at climate tech um, especially coming from the kind of Silicon Valley world that starts with first principles thinking oftentimes comes at it from their perspective of what do we need? Like what is necessary to decarbonize the global economy to hit net zero? And then they see a list of things and then they look at some of those things and say, okay, I think we've got, you know, we're on a path in, in certain areas and we've sort of got what we need. Here are the things we don't have that we are going to need. Now let's just bet on all those things. It's not guaranteed that just because we need those things, we're going to do those things. But if indeed we are going to tackle the challenge and, and, you know, rise to its magnitude, at some point we are going to need these things. This is the carbon removal being the perfect example of this. Um, And that's not the attitude that those of us who've been around this sector have had kind of beaten into us. Cause I think the, one of the big results of, of the first clean tech boom and bust was, no, you need to be, look, our big learning was you need to be really rigorous about anything that we invest in needs, you need a clear business and value proposition and the economics that have to be really strong. And, you know, we we just need to be really sophisticated, hard-nosed investors about this thing. And those are just two different um, starting points from which to think about what's going to be an attractive opportunity. I think they lead to different outcomes. I totally agree. And I think the the second point is very aligned with that, which is there will be companies that in a historical view are effectively overvalued from the OG perspective that just look like a normal value for new entrants. And our work, again, as early stage uh, fund managers, and perhaps you as well in the later stages, is going to be knowing when to break price discipline and when not to. Uh, because there will be moments that you pay up. There's many famous stories about not caring about your entry point when the end point, as in the IPO or the liquidity event, is very um, lucrative. It just doesn't matter. If we pay a $10 million pre or a $20 million pre, it just doesn't matter. Um, it matters a tremendous amount from an ownership stake. But if the company sold for $10 billion, it doesn't matter. And so figuring out when these firms and, um, excuse me, when these companies are on that growth profile versus when it looks like a kind of old stayed steady as she goes, you know, uh, double every year revenue path, which kind of looks like a ignoring ongoing SPAC activity looks like a fine outcome as a, as a savvy investor is dramatically different. And in our portfolio, we want to do both. We want to have both some big swings that could have some disproportionately large outcomes. And we also want to make sure that we maintain price discipline for those companies that we see on a linear growth path doing very interesting, impactful things. And so it may be unfair, but I will say that we would like to speak out of both sides of our mouth. Sometimes we want to pay up and sometimes we want to maintain price discipline. Uh, And of course, you never know who you're going to get. Abe Yokel is a co-founder and managing partner at Congruent Ventures. He is my erstwhile office mate and hopefully, again, future office mate at the point when we all have offices again. Uh, and he is the one that we check in with periodically on the state of climate tech VC. Abe, thanks for joining again. Thanks for having me. I can't call you a Yeti today. 
even though for our investors, we got a Yeti mug with congruent on it. And every time I drink coffee in the morning, I think of you. Oh, man, that's so nice. No, I'm, I'm more visible to you than ever now that we do Zoom. Fair enough. Nice to see you. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Daniel Waldorf is our senior producer. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. What did you think of the conversation? Tweet at us at, at Interchange Show or send us an email at postscriptaudio at gmail.com to let us know. Also, give us a rating, share it with a friend. It helps other people learn about the show. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Interchange.